Good morning. Welcome to Eden Baptist Church. This morning I'd like to read to you Psalm 100, but I'd like to read from you from a different translation than the usual translation we use this morning. This one that I use is not yet in print, but it's one that's commonly used in churches throughout America. I read to you Psalm 100. You might want to follow in your Bibles here. Here I read, Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord. Come before him with songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates and his courts. Give to him and his name. For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. And you kind of figure out a little bit what I was doing here. The translation that I read to you from is, I call the translation of dutiful worship. Others call it the NOV, the New Obedience Version. The editors of this translation have edited the scriptures. They've removed everything they consider superfluous to worship, like joy, gladness, thanksgiving, praise. And they've kept this, the main essential, obedience. To them, they consider that God is satisfied when we come with obedience, whether it's filled with joy or not. Obedience is all that matters. And that's why they can say, that's why they think that the appropriate translation is verses 1 and 2, Shout to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord. This morning, I denounce this translation as offensive, as cheap, and perverted. In its place, I suggest that we embrace with joyful hearts the words of the psalm written by a man intoxicated with the beauty and the marvelous goodness of our God. In light of the blessed hope which lies in us, in light of everything that God has done for us this morning, in light of the incredible God that we serve, I ask that this morning we turn to the Lord and with the psalmist this morning, I suggest that we shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. I suggest we worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his courts, his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Psalm 25, verses 1 through 15, continuing that theme. Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth, and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. 
of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit the land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He, he makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. If you'll take your hymnals, turn to 526. 526, we'll sing all four stanzas of the solid rock. Let's stand together as we sing number 526. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the Savior's but only lean on Jesus' name.
doing the same stanza this time. Stanza 3, 527, together, I know not how the Spirit moves. I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. But I know I have believed and persuaded that He is able to keep the found a resting place. My faith has found a resting place. this morning. Heavenly Father, we do commit these gifts now into your hands. We pray, Lord, that you would bless them, that you'd take them, multiply them, use them for your honor and glory. Lord, may we give with grateful hearts and joyful hearts, as we heard earlier, thankful hearts not just hearts out of, out of a dull um, uh, obedience that just is obeying you because we have to, but Lord, because we want to give and we want to see your work expanded and uh, throughout this region. We love you, Lord Jesus, and commit them again into your hands. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated.
you'll take your hymnals again, turn to 601. 601, we'll sing the little chorus. Sing it through two times. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. I'll say yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. Number 601. I'll say yes, Lord,
597, 597, take my life and let it be consecrated. We'll sing just stanzas one and six, the first and last stanzas. Take my life and let me Stand with me and turn to 595, just a couple pages back. 595, I give all to you. Sing all three stanzas. I give all my standing as we come before the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to this time of reading and searching out your word, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to sing it, to sing in reflection of your truth, and we do thank you for the joy that you place in our hearts. To know you and to walk with you is our greatest joy and pleasure. We know this and I pray, God, that this would continue to be our experience and a growing experience in our lives. For we sense, Lord, in our soul that there are times when we are very cold and we walk a long ways from you. We harbor a distance. But we thank you, God, for times like this when we can reflect upon your truth. We can sing your words with meaning and with joy in our hearts to remember all that you have done for us. We do give you our worship. I pray, God, that that would be a sincere and meaningful and true response in song on our parts. There are so many things that we can worship, and certainly there is a battle within each of us to worship self and to worship this, the things of this world. But we thank you, dear God, for the privilege to belong to you, to be your people, and to walk in faith. God, we are going to now, should you give us life and opportunity, invest ourselves in your word. 
to consider this life of faith and to match our lives against that of Abraham and his experience. I pray, God, as we do, that you would help us to realize your unique love for us as your people. And I pray, dear God, as we do, that we would now bend our minds and our thoughts to your word, that you might change us through this endeavor together. We pray that you'll meet with us in a unique way, opening your word to our hearts through the ministry of the Spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Please be seated and make your way, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. I've entitled this message, A Jet Tour Through Genesis Part 2 Continued. (laughs) It is very difficult to continue making your way through Genesis, but we are we're striving to do so and to stay online. I've fallen a little behind here. I wanted to look at Abraham's life in one week, but it is a very full life. And the Word of God is very deep at this place, and so I trust to bring that to close here today as we consider the life of Abraham. But as we prepare to do that, imagine with me, if you will, a star quarterback on a professional football team. His strong, handsome face is seen by many and recognized throughout the world. He's the best quarterback in the league on the best team perhaps in history. He's also very happily married to a lovely young woman with whom he has enjoyed four years of joyful devotion and friendship. She is in fact his pride and joy. And her high stock has just soared earlier this week because on Tuesday she gave birth to a little baby girl. All week the quarterback has struggled to pay attention in practice. He cannot wait till his first day off that he can spend with his family. He's very much distracted. But it's Monday night and his team is suited up for a nationally televised game before 70,000 fans. Pausing for a moment in a tunnel leading onto the field, the quarterback looks out into the stands. Somewhere out there is his wife and precious daughter. And a slight smile breaks across his face at the very thought. Then a signal is given and the quarterback leads the home team onto the field as the roar of the crowd convulses the stadium. 70,000 fans with their eyes and their hopes centered upon their star quarterback. It's an impressive scene. The sea of faces that are out there waiting. The sheer force of their collective roar shakes the earth. But as the quarterback lifts his head and raises his arm to acknowledge the frantic crowd, he turns his head and he focuses his eyes on one tiny spot in that massive stadium. Where is he looking? His eyes are fixed on one woman, holding one infant child in her arms as he squints to see his family in that one chair. He's fully aware of the 70,000 people that surround him. His rib cage is rattling at their cheers, and they know their eyes are set on him. But his focus in that moment is on his wife and his child. No one else would be able to pick his wife out of that crowd, but he can. And as far as he's concerned, she matters more to him than all of those 70,000 fans combined. 
Now the analogy falls very short, I'll admit, but in a sense, this illustrates for us the love of God for His people. Out of the massive sea of faces in this world, in the midst of all of the power and fury, God focuses His loving attention on His chosen people. There aren't many of them in comparison to the masses. They don't often stand out in the crowd. People miss them very easily, but He knows right where they are. And He is mostly concerned with their lives. They are the apple of His eye. What a joy is ours today as we gather to know. If I know Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, that I am at the center of His attention. You matter to Him. He is deeply interested in you, in your faith, and in your confidence in Him. Your relationship with Him means everything to God. We are reminded of God's electing love as we turn again today to the life of Abraham. And we remember as we narrow in here at chapter 12, the first 11 chapters, as they have considered many generations and many peoples and many places, but we narrow in here to this uh, 12th chapter and God's attention focuses upon Abraham. It's a big world out there. A lot of people. But out of the masses, God uniquely chooses this one man for a remarkable journey of faith. And so it is with our world. It's a world at war. It's a world of great, powerful politicians. It's a world of great finance and commerce. It's a world of great, massive nations. We're just small potatoes, so to speak, as God's people. But God looks past all the masses and the noise and the power of this world and He focuses His attention on the people of faith and upon their development and upon their journey to meet with Him throughout eternity. We've contrasted by way of this chart our first 11 chapters of Genesis. We'll not review those today, but remember here, if we could look at that other one there, we remember in the first 11 chapters the big picture is what is on the docket here. Many generations, many peoples, but then the focusing in here at chapter 12 upon God's people. And we come then to the major themes of Genesis, just reviewing there. We have creation, fall, the idea of two peoples, the people of God, or at least, generally, the people through whom Messiah will come and the people of the world. We narrow in then to God's electing love. His choice of a people for His own. As that love narrows in upon the head of Abraham, and this is where we should really pick up today, but we've been here, we tried to get through last week. Let's just review very quickly chapter 12, and you might look in your text. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. We read there, first of all, verse 1 of chapter 12, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Unmerited, elective call of God upon this man. And how does Abraham respond? He responds in obedience. 
He follows the call of God. And thus begins the journey of faith for this great man. Chapter 12 and verse 10, it is a difficult journey. There's a lapse of faith there in Egypt, a great moral failure as he lies about his wife Sarai, and the promise of an offspring is put at jeopardy. Chapter 13, however, Abram learns from this great failure of faith. Abram trusts God by giving Lot the opportunity to choose the best of the land. He puts that in God's hands. Lot goes to the area of Sodom on the fringes of the promised land. And Abram is left there in the promised land. Chapter 13, verses 14 through 16. God promises again to give him this land. It is a tremendous victory of faith. A twofold promise, there will be a land and there will be a people here. So Abram, verse 18 of chapter 13, moves his tents. He goes toward Mamre at Hebron, where he builds an altar to the Lord. Chapter 14, Abram defeats the eastern kings who have captured Lot. Abram blesses, is blessed by Melchizedek, the king of Salem, to whom he pays a tithe of the spoil. Chapter 15, paging through, if you just skim down through, we have the covenant that God establishes here with Abram. Now remember, Abram has a problem with all of this. God has said you'll have a great offspring, but there's no ability between him and his wife to have children. And so here he reaches out in his small faith, and he says, it must be my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. That's whom God has chosen to bear my offspring or to carry through with my line. No, says God. Verse 4 of chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to him. 15.4, this man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and looked at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And that important verse, verse 6, Abram believed the Lord. And he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram wasn't righteous in the sense that he did not deserve the affection of God. He did not deserve the love of God. He did not merit the choice of God, but he believed God. And that belief in the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God was credited to Abraham, Abram here as righteousness. Chapter 16, Abram continues to struggle with Sarai's infertility, and he takes Hagar, her handmaid, and fathers Ishmael by Hagar. Hagar is driven away, but God rescues her there at the end of chapter 16 and promises that she will have a son and he will be a great man. Chapter 17, God appears to Abram, confirms his promise of a land and an offspring to Abram by doing what? Remember, first he repeats the promise, verse 2. Then he changes Abram's name to Abraham. Then he establishes the covenantal sign of circumcision, verse 9 and following. And then by changing Sarai's name to Sarah, verse 15 and following. The problem is, they still don't have a son. They still don't have children, and they have no hope, it would seem, at least humanly speaking, that they ever will. But Abraham obeys, and he and all the males of his household are circumcised to identify with the God of heaven and to identify with his promises. You will have this land, and you will have an offspring. Now the faith journey continues. We pick up at chapter 18, and we have a visit from God. God again appears to Abraham. Chapter 17, verse 1. 17:22. he has appeared to Abraham. And I think, God, or I think Abraham knows who God is here. He's seen him in physical form. He's shown himself to him, apparently. 
And God appears here at Abram's, Abraham's tent along with two angels. Now Abraham plays host to God at his home in Mamre here in chapter 18. The three have come to deliver a message to Abraham. It's an old message. What is it? You will have children. You're going to have a great offspring. Verse 9 of chapter 18. We'll pick up there. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. Notice that promise. About this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So there we have it. We know not only has she been infertile through her life, she is now past the possibility of bearing children. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, am I After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return. I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Foolish to try to trick God, but we all do it. And Sarah comes forward with this lie and God sets her straight. I'd like you to look at verse 12 just for a moment. It's a critical verse to the narrative in that Sarah laughs in disbelief at God's promise. She sets biology over faith in God's word. But the Lord defends the integrity of His Word in verse 14 and asks that searching question to all of us who are people of faith. Listen to it. Is anything too hard for God? There's a lot of times our life lines up in in such a way that it seems that there might be. We talked about that earlier in the adult class, didn't we? Of a man who came to that conclusion, yes, there are some things that are too hard for God. But our God says, there's nothing too hard for me. Nothing. No human weakness or failure, no circumstantial difficulty ever restricts God from doing what He longs to do in our behalf as His people. Nothing is too hard for Him. I will return to you next year and you will have a son. Verse 16 When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Verse 19 distills into one sentence the essence of God's plan of salvation. As I've argued here for several weeks, I believe that Genesis is the seed from which the Bible comes. There there is nothing brand new as far as thematic pathway, but what is laid down for us here in Genesis. We have the whole picture there of the life of faith in that one simple verse. I have chosen him. 
electing grace. So that, here is sanctifying growth. Why does God choose? Why does He love? Why does He save anyone? Verse 19, so that He will direct His children and His household after them to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. We are not saved merely to get us out of hell. We are saved to live righteously and godly in this present world. This is the reason of God's love. How are we going to do that? Through active generational ethical behavior. By doing what is right and just as a family. To what end? God is magnified as the all-glorious Lord who keeps His promises so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what He has promised him and God's name will be exalted as the God who can do the impossible. All Abraham has is the word of God's promise. You can't touch it. You can't wear it. You can't show people. You just have this word. This unseen promise of God. That's it. Abraham has to journey on, but God says, I've chosen you so that you live righteously and so that through you my name will be glorified. That's the gospel. That's the saving work of God from start to finish. Right there encapsulated. To believe God, Abraham will have to do something. You know what he'll have to do? Let's put it into real practical terms. Abraham, who is old, his wife, who is past childbearing, he will need to go in with her and lay with her, and she will have to conceive. Abraham believes God, and he acts as if he believes God. And the author of Hebrews draws on that very act as an evidence of Abraham's faith. Now Abraham learns here then secondly in chapter 18 at verse 20 to contend with God for His glory. One of the greatest sections of Scripture on prayer. Abraham learns to contend with God for His glory. Let's remember here that Sodom, where Abraham's nephew Lot is now living, is a seething cauldron of sensual passion and rebellion against God. God tells Abraham, I'm going to go down there to this city. I'm going to visit this city and I'm going to determine if the outcry against it is just and if it is deserving of judgment. He'll assess the condition. As verse 22 makes very clear, the men turned away and went down towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing there before the Lord. So the Lord never goes to Sodom, but these two angels with him go down. And while God lingers, Abraham talks to God. Verse 23, Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? We have here a picture of what our relationship with God should be about. It's a relationship. I don't understand those who pray, Oh, thou Lord God, maker of heaven and earth. I would talk to him. He wants to hear from you. Or those who simply formalize prayers into meaningless statements, talk to God. That's what Abraham does. He just talks to God. And not only does he just talk to God, but he has a very specific concern. What is that concern? Abraham knows that Sodom is ripe for divine judgment and will not survive the Lord's inspection. What is it that troubles Abraham? 
He knows it's just for the wicked to be destroyed, and he knows God has every right to destroy the righteous with the wicked. But if the righteous are destroyed with the wicked, God, what will happen to your reputation as just and good? I'm concerned. And I, I wonder, too, Abraham inve- invested quite a bit in this Lot guy, hadn't he? Remember chapter 13, he went and rescued him and took all of his goods back and returned him to Sodom. And to see him go down in smoke like this had to be tough for Abraham. So he talks to God and says, Lord, your reputation as a just judge is on the line here. Will you kill the righteous that are there in Sodom with the wicked? What does God do? He encourages Abraham. Keep going. And he goes, remember, from 50 to 40 and all the way down to 10. And God just says, basically, keep going. Verse 33, though, notice very specifically that the text says the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. This isn't Abraham putting God up against a tree and saying, now you stay there until I'm done talking with you. There was a certain point where God said, I'm done, and he leaves Abraham with this prayer ringing in the air. And with this statement, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Verse 25. Far be it from you, says Abraham, to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham contends with God. God knows how many righteous people are in that city. He knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to destroy it. But God encourages Abraham to pray along these lines to promote his justice. And we learn through this passage that God is always unimpeachably just. You can count on it. But secondly, we need to learn as people of faith to argue for it. To argue in prayer, in humility, learning to contend with God for His glory in the earth. Not telling God what He'll do, not being obnoxious with God, but pleading with Him to honor His name in this fallen world. We need to learn to pray by contending with God. Not simply sharing with Him everything that we know. Not simply sharing formally some prayer with other people that they can hear, but getting down to business with the Lord to contend for His glory. Do we sense that? Why do we gather on Wednesday nights for prayer? As I come, to me, it's time to work. It's time to contend for the glory of God in prayer. And there are lives in our church, and there are God's people throughout this world, and there's a lost world that needs people to contend with God for His glory to be done. Things need to change. People need to change. This world is in desperate need. Where are the people who pray and plead with God to act? Abraham raised his hand and said, Here I am. I will contend for the righteousness of God here at this place. And he does in prayer. That leads us to a discussion of Sodom in chapter 19. The two angels visit the city. They meet Lot at the city gate. He brings them into their house Remember, as a stark confirmation of the moral depravity of the city, the men of the city gather around the house. They want to break down the door. They're pressing against Lot. They want those men to come out so that they can have sexual relations with them. The angels strike those men with blindness, pull Lot into the house, warn him to flee, bring your family. He's only able to get his two daughters and wife to run. 
And his wife, of course, doesn't run for very long. She stops, turns back, and he loses her as well. Only three escape. But before we get there, verse 16 of chapter 19, let me just skip to there. When he hesitated, that is, Lot hesitates to run. The men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, and the Lord was merciful to them. As Lot leaves, he negotiates with the angels to flee to the nearby village of Zoar rather than to the mountains where they had directed him, confirming the mercy and the patience of God. I mean, think about it. Remember this again. Lot, Lot city is about to be destroyed, and he stands there arguing about the escape route. He will end up in the mountains in the end anyway, but for now, Mr. Cosmopolitan wants to be in some kind of a town, and he's granted leniency by these angels. So while Lot fled to Zoar, Sodom was given one more night in the blindness of her depravity. Then verse 24 of chapter 19, the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah, and the Lord out for the, from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities in the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. Some have suggested here an earthquake releasing compressed gases ignited by lightning, uh, explosive raining down then of fire that perhaps was what happened. And there is geo, uh, geological evidence in this area that there was a catastrophic change at one place in ancient history. We believe the text that this is what happened. As Abraham rose in the morning, he looked toward Sodom and saw the smoke. Yet by sparing Lot, God had answered Abraham's prayer for mercy. Notice verse 29, an amazing phrase there. And when God destroyed the cities of the plain, He remembered Abraham, and He brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Who does He remember? Well, He remembered Lot, certainly. But it says He remembered Abraham. He saves Lot by remembering Abraham and his prayer. God heard this prayer to save the righteous, and He answered beyond Abraham's prayer. God stopped him at ten, and God gave him better than that. There were only three, and he saved all three, showing that he is unimpeachably just. Abraham succeeded with God in prayer, and God vindicated his name. That leads to this sordid history of his nephew Lot at verse, 19, uh, verse 30 of chapter 19 and following. We read of Lot and his two daughters. Now remember, the Israelites are reading this. They're moving toward the promised land. They're going to have to cross through some people known as the whom? The Moabites and the Ammonites. So we have the story here of how the Moabites and the Ammonites came to be. Lot's two daughters getting him drunk. Uh, he impregnates both of them, and the result is Moab and Ben-Ami, the uh, Moabite father and the Ammonite father. And we have that history that's recorded here. We come then to chapter 20, and we could call this an old sin revisited. On the journey of faith, we all recognize that besetting sins have a way of returning. Abraham has made much progress in his faith, but remember the debacle in Egypt? It revisits him here before Abimelech. Abimelech takes Sarah into his harem because once again, Abraham lies about, her, uh, about his identity or her identity and their relationship together. 
Moving to the Negev, verse 1 of chapter two, uh, 20, and then verse 2, Abraham said of his wife, she is my sister, and so Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. Sarah is now in the harem of Abimelech. And Abraham once again subjects his beautiful wife to this great indignity. What is more, think about the twists in this plot. Think about where this puts God in his sovereign plan. God's promise to Abraham and Sarah is now in serious jeopardy, isn't it? Think about the timing. God promised Sarah that she'd have a child when? In a year. Now Sarah's not pregnant here. I'll tell you why she's not pregnant, because if it came out that she was pregnant and had a child within less than nine months of the time Abimelech took her, she would be done. And they'd be looking for Abraham, too. It'd be a terrible uh, problem for a king. She's not pregnant. They've got a year to have a child, and she is in Abimelech's home. Guarded. Guarded by soldiers, undoubtedly, in his harem. There's a problem here. So Abraham has made a great mess of things once again. And once again, the God of grace comes to the rescue and invades the slumbering head of Abimelech with dreams. He confronts Abimelech and says, you're a dead man. You've got another man's wife. Of course, Abimelech says, I didn't know she was another man's wife. And God said, I know, and I kept you from her. But then Abimelech has a word or two for Abraham as he meets him the next day. And as a score to settle there, he confronts him and Abraham offers this explanation in verse 11 of chapter 20. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there's surely no fear of God in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Fear is one of the great enemies of faith. Fear drove Abraham to jeopardize the promise of God and sacrifice the honor of his wife and it was all so irrational. God had promised Abraham, you will have a child with this woman with somewhere around a year from now. God told him that. And yet he fears for his life. Goes through this whole scheme and puts himself in great jeopardy. It's a weak faith. The fear of God is overwrought by the fear of man. Well, Abraham intercedes for Abimelech in verses 17 and 18, we see God taking him from liar to prophet, chapter 20, verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 3, his blessing upon the nations is being realized here as God in his grace puts Abraham as one who prays for Abimelech, the healing of his family, and all is made right. We learn that God is big enough. Listen to this and hear it carefully. God is big enough not only to save us from our sin, but to save us from ourselves. Of course, we are the sinners, but he saves Abraham from, his, from himself and his own means that led him into so much trouble. But God is also big enough to sanctify us not only from our sin, but even by our sin. God uses this sin of Abraham to change Abraham and to move him. That doesn't ever justify sin, but it says that God is never out of control. This leads, of course, to the promise being fulfilled of Isaac's birth, chapter 21. Verses 1 through 21, God delivers on his promise, infertile, barren, Sarah bears a son to Abraham. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord said to Sarah what he had 
did for Sarah what he had promised. Verse 2, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Laughter of disbelief is turned to the laughter of joy. And that is the domain of God. Abraham loses Ishmael at this point, verses 8 and following, as Sarah is permitted to dismiss her handmaid Hagar. God's promise of a great nation through Hagar is jeopardized by lack of water, just as his promise of a great nation through Sarah was jeopardized by infertility. But God rescues Hagar and Ishmael, verses 15 to 19, and promises to make a great nation of Ishmael as he had promised before. So Ishmael is saved as well as a child given to Sarah. There's then the treaty with Abimelech beginning at verse 22. At this time Abimelech and Philco, the commander of the forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Show me and the country where you are living as in an alien. Show to me in the country where you are living as an alien the same kindness I have shown to you. And Abraham said, I swear it. What's the importance of this narrative? Abimelech's that same king, that, um, or at least it's the same title in the same land of uh, the one to whom Abraham lied about Sarah's identity earlier. The two had parted company at that time. But Abimelech seeks out Abraham and wants to establish a peace treaty with him. What's the amazing thing about that? You have an army, a king with an army and his army general here seeking out a Bedouin and asking him if he will treat him with kindness. It's an amazing account. Abimelech has seen something in Abraham that is undeniable, and that is the blessing of God upon his life. It rests on Abraham's head. There's no doubt that God is protecting him and guiding him, and he says as an unbeliever, God is with you. I want to be on your side, not against you. He had more sense than did Lot. I want peace. What a testimony of faith, and what a challenge that is to us. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and mind your own business. Work with your hands, just as you've been told. Why? So that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Abraham had won the respect of this king because he knew that God had blessed him. Abraham agrees to the treaty, but confronts Abimelech. Remember on that well that was taken by Abimelech's people? There's a treaty that is cut there. He gives seven ewes to Abimelech, saying with these ewes, remember, this is my well. Abimelech says, agreed, it's your well. And it's called Beersheba, a well of seven or the well of oath, either one. And it plays heavily into the biblical narrative from that place on. Important place of faith, not only for Abraham, but for his uh, children to follow. We have then the ultimate test of faith in chapter 22. Let's take a deep breath and go into one more lengthy account here. But this is uh, a pinnacle in Abraham's life, a pinnacle in our study of faith in his life. And that is this test of faith at chapter 22. Abraham has endured many tests, but in God's providence, the climax comes here. Verse 1 says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. 
Sometime later, he's at peace with Abimelech. He's at peace in the land. He's prosperous in the land. Abraham's not asking for this. He's living in prosperity and peace, and one day, a test. A test from God. If there's any doubt, this passage settles it. God is not really ultimately concerned about us being peaceful and everything going right. He's concerned about our faith. He's concerned about changing and developing us and maturing us into the people that he wants us to be, and he messes with Abraham here. This is no dream. This is a test. It's not a temptation. It's a test. It's a test of Abraham's faith. Why is it a test? 12.2, God said, I will make you into a great nation. Sometime later, 13.16, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. 15.4, a son coming from your body will be your heir. And Abraham believed God and God credited to him as righteousness. Chapter 17, verses 19 and 21, these words from God. Getting more and more specific, isn't it? You're going to have a great offspring. Now, now let me get this straight. It's your body. Now he moves chapter 17 and says, it's your wife, Sarah. Quoting God, your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. My covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. Human language can't make it any more specific. It's you, Abraham, it's Sarah, and it's a child that comes from you, and his name is Isaac, and it's this Isaac through whom a great offspring will come. God keeps promising. Chapter 18, verse 14 reiterates the promise of Isaac's birth in about a year. And of Abraham's seed becoming great, chapter 18 and verse 18. Chapter 21 and verse 12, God says, Through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. It's like he gives him this one more statement. Here it is again. All things work together for good, or whatever else we want to put there. I will never leave you or forsake you. He gives him that word for him. It's I will give you an offspring through this son. Time after time after time after time, God promises. And now God says to Abraham, take that son. Notice how he puts it here, verse 2. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. God's not playing around here. He puts the knife in his heart and he turns it when he says, the son you love. And go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. How does that make any sense at all? With all that God has said to Abraham, Abraham must demonstrate his loyalty to God by killing Isaac, the one God has promised to live and to bear a great offspring. Verse 5, as they are journeying, to the mountain in faith and obedience. Abraham says to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. What faith? We're coming back. We'll be back here. His faith did not cave in to reason. His faith sought reason out. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But he comes to this conclusion according to the author, author of Hebrews. God will raise this son from the dead. That's how strong his faith is. He comes up with a supernatural explanation. Now he's wrong about the details, but he's right on track with the answer. There's an, there is a supernatural intervention 
in the moment as God speaks. Reading at verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb and the burnt offering? Again, the knife is twisted in Abraham's heart. Abraham answered, verse 8, God himself will provide the lamb and the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar and there, there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Abraham had constructed a number of altars through the land. This is one he never counted on building. Previous altars in chapter 12 and 13 were erected in response to God's promise of an offspring. This altar is built in direct threat to those promises. But God said to do it, and Abraham's doing it. Isaac submits to his father's authority, and in verse 10, Abraham reaches out his hand and takes the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And then God provides a ram to take Isaac's place, verses 13 and 14. God repeats his promise to Abraham, verses 15 to 19, and swears an oath because as, because as Hebrews 6 says, he had nothing else to confirm his word but this oath, and so he does. Faith seldom, we learn. Faith seldom calls us to do what we can easily figure out. It calls us to trust God in the dark, but on the other side are great joys. What joy Abraham experienced as he returned down that mountain with Isaac that day. What fresh insights he had into the mercy of God. And it calls upon us to consider at this climax of faith in the account of Abraham, ask yourself again these tough questions. Are you willing to do anything that God asks you to do and to lay down anything that He asks you to sacrifice? If there is anything in this world that you love, apart from your love for and your joy in God, it is an idol. And every idol will steal away the joy that God longs for you to, to discover in Him. If He calls you to give it up, if He calls you to lay it down, let it go. Because God alone is to be worshipped. And on this place of ultimate worship, or of, of great worship, there is the ultimate worship. The temple in Jerusalem is built near or, some would argue, even on this very spot. Many centuries later, and one Passover season so long after this event, at that very temple, sacrificial lambs were being slaughtered while God's only Son was offered in the place of sinners. On a Roman cross staked on a hill called Calvary, the Father would nail His Son to a cross. As Abraham took his son and laid him on that altar and prepared him for sacrifice, so 
the God of heaven took his son and nailed him to a cross in this very place on earth. And as the swirling winds of demonic despair howled in his ear, the son would cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in that dark hour of the most severe travail, no one stopped the Father's hand this time. The Heavenly Father laid His hand on the knife and He sacrificed the life of His only Son for us. Two hills, two anguished fathers, two monogenes sons, two only sons. One eternal sacrifice for sin. You see the connection. Don't forget it. Remember what Jesus said in John 8, 56? This has everything to do with Jesus. What did he say? Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What did Abraham know about Jesus? Living so long before. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, says Jesus in John 8. Abraham rejoiced to see the divine provision of a substitute sacrifice as divine intervention for sinners on Mount Moriah. Abraham had no idea, I don't believe, of the full implications of that ram caught in the thicket, but he rejoiced in the provision of God for sin. And how much more should we, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Son of God, rejoice in the provision of God? Well, the climax is reached there in that 22nd chapter, and what follows from this point are concluding details. Permit me here just a few more moments as we bring to close Abraham's life. We're kind of on the downward side now. The story comes to climax, and everything that happens from here on out pertains to the two promises. They're just further details taking forward the account of an offspring, uh, the promise of an offspring and of the land. We have, we're dealing with uh, the offspring in chapter 22, verses 20 through 24, as the birth of Rebekah is mentioned. That deals with the offspring. She will become, of course, Isaac's wife. Chapter 23, what are we dealing with? In the death of Sarah, we're dealing with the land, the promise of the land. You say, well, we're dealing with the death of Sarah. But remember, verses 1 and 2 speak of Sarah's death. Abraham mourns for her, doesn't minimize that death, but where does the text focus from there? At verse 3 and following, the full emphasis of the text is upon the cave of Machpelah that Abraham buys to bury his wife. And even as the chapter ends, we see verse 20 of chapter 23, so the field and the cave in it were deeded to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. So this, this scene with Sarah's death gives honor to her, but also focuses on the fact that now there is land in the possession of Abraham in this promised land. This purchase is a demonstration then of Abraham's faith once again. Although he was a foreigner and a sojourner, by purchasing a cave in which his family could be buried, what is he saying? He's demonstrating that he believes this land will become the permanent possession of his people. Chapter 24 then deals with offspring. Abraham secures a wife for Isaac. We've been introduced to Rebecca earlier here in this genealogy uh, at the uh, end of chapter 22. And now verse chapter 24, we have the connection between Isaac and Rebecca that is made in a very challenging way. 
Notice verse 1 of 24. Abraham was now old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed him in every way. He said to the chief servant in his household, the one in charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. This would be a sign of of swearing, a, a procedure that they used here. I want you to swear, verse 3, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I am living, but will go down to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. The important points of this passage, and you can skim through it and realize it's very lengthy. We'll not take time to read through it again. Number one is the sheer length of the narrative. The sheer length of this narrative, I believe, is here so that, Abraham, so that Moses, by this narrative, can emphasize its importance in the whole scheme. The emphasis is on the fact that Abraham chooses a wife for his sons outside of Canaan and that God in His providence leads to this marriage. In verses 5 and 6 of this chapter, we read there, the servant asked Abraham, what if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country from you came from? What does Abraham say? Make sure that you do not take my son back there, Abraham said. His eyes of faith are clear here. We're never going back. This is where God has put us. We're here for the long haul. Don't ever take my son Isaac back to my homeland. It's here that we are to be. It's here that God has promised us a land. And so, as verse 7 puts it, the Lord, the God of heaven, who brought me out of my father's household and my native land and who spoke to me and promised me on oath, saying, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you so that you can get a wife for my son from there. That encapsulates the whole narrative, chapter 24. God will lead you to do what's right. There's a hard deal here to find a wife for my son that will come back here to Canaan and leave her home and trust your hand as a servant she's never seen and doesn't know. That's going to be very hard to connect with the right woman, but God will lead you. Let's do what we can do. What I can do is saddle up some donkeys, provide some, some, probably some people to provide protection, and I can send you on your way to get over there, and you can get over there. God's going to have to bring the woman and drop her right in our lap. Let's trust Him to do that. And that's what Abraham does because he trusts the promise of God not to take a woman from Canaan, to take a woman that will come to Canaan and live there permanently. And of course, we find the great success as God leads. And what again, a beautiful picture of understanding of the providence of God. The servant did all the work and God made all of it work. He was sweating and working and giving every effort to make this whole thing happen, but God alone could make it happen. The way providence works, we know that God is in control of all things, but we give our greatest effort to do what is right. And he brings Isaac and Rebekah together in that way. So we read at the end of chapter 24, verse 62, Isaac was, had come from Bir Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. He went, he went out to the field one evening to meditate, and as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. Rebekah also looked up and saw Isaac. She got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, the servant answered. So she took her veil and covered herself. Then the servant told Isaac all he had done, and Isaac brought her into the tent of her mother Sarah, and he married Rebekah. So she became his wife, and he loved her. 
and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Abraham has succeeded. There's a son who lives in the land to take on his name and the name of his people and fulfill the promise of God. And that son now has a wife. Abraham's journey of faith comes to close as he secures this wife. And then it's no accident that the text next records his death. His journey is done. It's finalized. It's complete. At 25-7, Abraham lived 175 years, breathed his last, and died a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And where did they bury him? In the cave of Machpelah. That he had purchased in the land. He was a man chosen by God. It's a big world out there. A lot of people, a lot of power, a lot that gathers our attention. It's a big world. But God honed in on this one man and chose this one man and loved him. And Abraham lived a life of faith. Chosen by God. Secondly, he was a man of great faith in God. We gave his funeral... um, Eulogy, we might say these things. He was chosen by God. He was a man of great faith in God. He knew how to trust God in the dark. He knew how to trust God even when to do so made absolutely no human sense. He had a forward-looking faith that focused on God's promises. There was a city before him, and it wasn't a city on this earth. It was a city in the heavenly realms. He set his sights there, and he lived his life as if that was his home, not this land. And we could say thirdly that he was a man of worship. He left behind him a trail of altars and wells and in one place a grove of trees as a place of worship, at least maybe others. But it reminds us that genuine faith in God is never cold and calculating. As uh, Philip brought to our attention this morning, I think that was the point that helped us out as we began our worship today. It's not cold and calculating. That's just the basic bare facts of ritualistic worship. There is to be a heart in it. We're to love God really. We're to have emotion and passion for Him. And that moved Abraham to build these altars and to worship the Lord. People of faith know that God is an impregnable rock. They know that God loves them, whatever may come, and they love Him in return. They learned as Abraham learned and clung to that promise of Genesis 15.1, I am your shield, your very great reward, said God to Abraham. And Abraham came to experience that this is exactly what God is. A shield of protection. We are indestructible as we walk in the path of God's promises. Nothing can happen outside of His plan. If it's our time to go, then it's our time to go. And we can kick and scream, but that's His plan. But nothing is going to reduce God's plan to rubble. He is our shield. And we can stand behind that shield with full confidence of faith. No matter what comes, He is our shield. And He is secondly our reward. He is the source of our soul's joy and gladness. He is all that we can have. And He's all that is good for us. He's our reward. 
And I think if we genuinely sense that and know that and believe that, then we will, like Abraham, walk in faith behind the shield and worship in joy. If we put anything on his headstone in our setting and culture, we might put this phrase, he was the friend of God. That is what 2 Chronicles 27 says. In the prayer of Jehoshaphat, he speaks of Abraham as God's friend. What a high privilege. But it will only come as we hide behind the shield of God's protection and walk in faith and as we worship in gladness of heart because God is our great reward. Is He your great reward? Do you hide behind His shield of protection? Oh, people of faith, let's walk in faith, in confidence in His Word, whether we understand it or not, to press forward in faith and to be the friends of God. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we need help because our faith wavers. I think it's a lot easier sometimes for us to see ourselves in Egypt lying to the Pharaoh and in Philistine territory lying to Abimelech and trying to skirt around issues and trying to avoid what you call us to do. But I pray, God, 